This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, this is Joe's sister, Nikki. I think I might be the only girl in the world who has a brother who spends his entire day in the basement pretending he has an internet radio show. Jeez. Live from Joe's mom's freshly cleaned basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. Hey there, Money Podcast fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today, everything spiffy around here to welcome New York Times bestselling author of the hit book, Wealth Can't Wait, David Osborne and Paul Morris. Plus, in headlines, big brokerage firms are making it harder for their advisors to leave. What does that mean for your money? We'll explain. Plus, if you're up for a holiday bonus that's better than the jelly of the month club, yeah, like that's possible, how do you minimize the tax hit? We'll tackle that too. And we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline, answer a lucky listener letter, and leave you bragging about nailing my incredible trivia challenge. And now, two guys who are always the last two picked for the neighborhood pickup football games, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-J. I'd be the first one picked if you didn't always show up at the field at the same time as me. I was going to say, it's because you always want to be all-time quarterback. <laughs> but I throw better. Than Do you remember all all-time those quarterback days? playing yes. like pickup football? I'm all-time quarterback. Yeah, for both teams. Yes. Yes. It My just, kids figured that out. Just I'm horrible. Playing with the neighbor. Hey, everybody. I am Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter and across the card table from me for another iteration of the Stacking Benjamins podcast. It's my good friend, OG. That's a, that's a $12 word, my man. What's Iteration. that? Iteration. Well, you know, I'm on my second cup of coffee already, so we're iterating. Could you use that in a sentence, please? I'm Iteration. This is a new iteration of the show. Could I have country of origin, please? It's from uh, Iterationville. Iteration. Yeah. There was actually a play about a spelling bee that I went to that involved the audience that was really funny about that, where they'd say country of origin. The dude couldn't come up with anything. So he made stuff up like the, the nice. guy playing like the middle school principal who's putting on the, the, the thing. It was awesome. I couldn't be more generic about that. There was this uh, play that <laughs> I don't remember the name about of. The stuff and, and it was the, good. And I laughed. It, it was so incredible. You guys oh, should yeah. see it. It's great. Yeah. Two thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. We got two thumbs up for this podcast because, man, these guys are awesome. Not only New York Times best. Well, thank you. Oh, we're talking about the. Yeah, unfortunately, not talking about you. Talking about our great guest, David Osborne and Paul Morris today. These guys, not only New York Times bestselling author, but also Wall Street Journal bestseller and USA Today bestseller. 
Wealth Can't Wait. And I have to tell you, when I first when I first saw this book and heard about this book, I went, yeah, okay, getting wealthy quicker. Like just what I need is to interview some people about like a get rich quick scheme. This wasn't it, man. These guys, these guys are top uh, realtors with uh, Keller Williams. Then I also thought, oh, it's just going to be a, you know, we get pitches from everybody trying to talk about real estate. Not about that. Seriously, about getting on your horse and finding a way to make money quicker. So if you're somebody looking for some inspiration, we're going to bring it to you today. We're going to mine these guys for as much as we can get out of them, OG. All right. Sounds good. But you know what else we're going to mine? How's that for a segue? I was going to say, I'm pretty good at miming. <laughs> I can't I can't mime this. Yeah. Imagine a podcast where it's just all mime. I'm doing it. <laughs> Got to say a big thanks to Harry's for supporting Stacking Benjamins. I love my Harry's razor. This holiday, you can give Harry's and give handsome at the same time. Get your holiday shopping done early and take advantage of free shipping to get a limited edition holiday shave set while supplies last. Head to harrys.com forward slash SB right now. That's harrys.com forward slash SB. Thanks to Harry's for sticking with us. You know, these companies do a test. And apparently, we uh, like Harry's enough. And I totally, every time I put on that shaving cream OG. You smell so good from I, over here. I smell fantastic. I want to give you a big old smooch. Ah, if you're looking for a better way to invest, you have to check out M1 Finance. They've completely rethought how online brokerages should work to make investing enjoyable, convenient, and low cost. way it works is this. You build an investment portfolio by specifying what percentage of your money you want to go into certain investments. After the couple minutes it takes to set everything up, just a couple, you just deposit the money. It's that simple, as easy to manage as a savings account. M1 automates all the buying and selling to put money into your portfolio with the correct allocation. It even uses fractional shares, so every penny gets put to work. You know that... Uh, Warren Buffett stock. What's that up to now? Berkshire. Uh, a couple hundred, some odd thousand. A couple billion. Right. Well, you can buy a fractional share of that and get all your money to work. And it intelligently adapts how it directs the money based on market movements. With that one, it's super simple to have your money always invested exactly the way you want. It's a no brainer to check out for anyone interested in investing. Get this. Use Stacking Benjamins in the promo code. And you know what? You're going to walk away with the first year for free. That's free. How's that for a holiday gift? Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash M, the number one finance. M1 finance. Be invested. We're invested. A great show today. Great, great authors coming on the show. But first we've got headlines. So let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our Stacking Benjamins headlines. First headline comes to us from Investment News. This written by Bruce Kelly. Merrill, likely the next big firm to dump broker recruiting protocol. I didn't know anything about this. I had to read up on this, oh, but no? apparently okay. the you do. Yes. Uh, apparently the last few years. Uh, I know a little bit about a lot of things, Joe. <laughs> all the brokerage firms got together and said, hey, let's just kind of. About 15 years ago. Right? Let's just kind of make this a little easier for everybody. And we'll have this protocol where how we hire advisors and it makes it easier for advisors to go place to place. And they said, hey, sometimes you lose, sometimes you win. Well, guess what's been happening lately, OG? All the big wirehouses have been losing bleeding advisors as little RIA firms come on board this protocol. And now we just saw UBS and Morgan Stanley say, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're a, couple, a couple of weeks ago, UBS let it 
out basically that they were not participating in the broker protocol anymore. They had uh, the last year or 18 months or so they've lost advisors, which is, you know, not what you want to do as a growing firm. So they just said, you know, we're not going to participate. And what this broker protocol did was it was an agreement between, gosh, there's probably about 3000 companies that signed on to it eventually, but it started, like you said, with kind of the big brokerage firms. If you left, if you were a broker at Merrill Lynch and you wanted to get over to Morgan Stanley, maybe they gave you a recruiting package or, you know, a better payout or something like that, right? Or maybe just like their services better, whatever for your clients, you could leave Merrill and you could take a certain amount of data with you without fear of being sued, sued by Merrill for, you know, copyright or, or trade secrets or, you know, that sort of thing. Competition. Uh, privacy issue. Yeah. Competition stuff. So you could take names and address and phone number and, uh, you know, an email address. You couldn't take client social security numbers. You, you know, that's all private. Of course, you couldn't take statements and that sort of thing, but it gave you a way to say, Hey, I'm leaving Merrill. I'm going to Morgan. And now I've got my client list. I can call them right and say, Hey guys, I was at Merrill. Now I'm at Morgan. Come on over. Okay. UBS said, yeah, you can't do that anymore. Morgan followed slightly uh, shortly thereafter, oh, about a week later. Now Merrill's thinking about doing the same thing. As a matter of fact, in another article that I read, Morgan Stanley got out of the broker protocol, let's say on Thursday, and on Monday sued an advisor who left on Friday. Wow. Wow. And won. Yeah, yeah, because the they were because they were no longer part of the protocol. Because they're not part of the deal anymore. How about that? And, and that advisor been setting that up for ever and i'm sure the oh, yeah, advisor was like time. oh crap and now just trying to get out as quickly as they can and yeah. was you know a day late well he was a day late and, uh, and as a matter of fact the article that i read this broker he left morgan went someplace else was sued you know to prevent contacting his clients for two years the judge ruled in the favor of morgan stanley and now he got fired by the new company he left <laughs> he just started because he has no you know book of business to bring uh. There are two big uh, firms left in this agreement, Merrill Lynch and Wells Fargo and uh, Casey Wells Knight. Wells Fargo's got a whole new story going on. You caught wind of that? Case that's, a new, that's a new headline. No, no. We can talk about that here in a second. But the uh, Merrill Lynch will, be, will leave before the FINRA blackout, said Casey Knight, Executive Vice President, ESP Financial Search. That happens on December 26th, by the way. Uh, you yep. got to give them notice by the 26th that you're going to leave uh, if you're going to leave this year. Uh, Wells Fargo will stick with protocol for well in the next year and, quote, suffer greatly from attrition while doing their best to recruit. That's the that's the tough thing. These these firms are trying to hold on to advisors. It was mutually assured destruction. And that it was like the nuclear, you know, agreement between the U.S. and Russia is basically what was happening. Right. They're like. I won't blow you up if you don't blow me up. Okay, cool. But now UBS is like, eh, I still want to blow people up. And well, Morgan's like, well, if you're blowing people up, I'm blowing people up. The issue Merrill's is, the, the issue is, and it talks about this in the article, part of the problem is these big wirehouses think that it's the packages people are chasing and the higher payouts. Like advisors can get a, possibly a higher payout through the smaller uh, firms that they go with. They can maybe instead of getting 40% or 50% of the commission that they get if they're commission-based advisors, which these wirehouses are, they can move up to maybe 80 or 90%. And people, these big firms think 
that advisors are leaving for that reason. And although I think having worked in the industry and that that may be part of the reason, right, that kind of pushes people out the door. I think the bigger thing is these big wirehouses are becoming more and more toxic. Like if you say that you're a client of Merrill, I think it used to be cool. And now with a lot of people, you're a client of Merrill. You're like, what? You enjoy paying huge fees like you, you, you love paying your advisor a ton of money for the same service you can get for a lower fee someplace else. What do you think about that? I think it has a lot to do with three things. One is the compensation, which is a really big deal. And going from a brokerage firm to an independent firm or setting up your own certainly changes the compensation dynamic. Now, let's not let's not kid ourselves to say that when you start your own business, there's no expenses associated with that. Right. So a lot of times people find out that it's roughly about the same. But I think that's also why, and I want to hear your other two, but I think that's also why the people start at these big houses. Like as an example, I was with American Express and yep. I know when I started my career, people weren't coming into my office because it was Joe Salcihai. People were coming to my office because I had this big blue box behind my name, right? Yeah. This big, hey, he's with American Express. Like, I, I can't tell you the number of times people said, well, we knew that there was a certain standard because of the fact that you were affiliated with American Express. Later on, once you've established a client base and you can start that new firm, knowing that you have X number of clients that are going to come with you, I think it's easier to pay those fees you're talking about. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. So the first is compensation. I think, you know, people recognize they can maybe make a little bit more money. The second is the culture, which kind of talks a little bit about what you're saying here, but the culture is much more of a sales culture, you know, and you've got production requirements, meaning you've got to sell a certain amount of stuff. You've got, you know, payout grids that say, if you sell this, you get this pay. And if you don't sell that, you don't get that pay and you need to you know, I read about these things where uh, different companies have to sell a certain amount of checking accounts. I'm a financial planner, investment advisor. Do I want to be talking to clients about make sure you get your checking account over here at, you know, Bank of America or whatever, little things like that. And then I think the third reason is just to do better for their clients. In that sales culture environment, you've got to almost cram certain things to your clients. Some square Whereas if pegs, you're an independent some, firm. Some square yeah. pegs and round holes. Yeah, if you're an independent firm, you can do what's right, right? You can be a fiduciary. You can't be a fiduciary and be a broker. It's not the same thing, you know? So so you can do the right thing for your clients. And I think a combination of those three things, everybody weights them differently, is driving people to be more independent. And uh, and you're right. These big brokerage companies are hemorrhaging advisors and money and going, well, we'll just stop that. And I definitely don't want to say when I said that, that, you know, people are paying higher fees with these companies, that the advisors that work at these big companies are all bad. I have met and I know people that are at Merrill right now that I would, that I would, I would send mom to in a heartbeat, fantastic advisors do great by their clients, wonderful people, but you're right. The culture is much more of a sales culture in general there than it is doing your own thing. Hey, there are great people at every firm. There's great doctors at every hospital and there's poor doctors at every hospital. There's great advisors at every firm and there's poor advisors at every firm. But, uh, but I don't think that this is the answer to their woes. I don't think, I don't think so either. This is going to make it worse actually, because people are still going to leave. Well, now the advisors are going to feel like they're being held hostage. And if things are great here, if I'm working for a wonderful company, why is my company working harder to keep me hostage? Uh-huh. It's going to be tough. 
So that's on the advisor side. And I also think, by the way, we've had plenty of people asking if you're getting into the financial services industry, how this affects you. I still think learning the sales culture up front isn't a bad idea going to a place, even though you're going to have tougher handcuffs now than you had before going there to learn the sales approach because i mean you always have to be selling right i mean you always no matter what type of job you work in you have to sell people on the fact that they want to work with you and that their goals matter whatever it might be i still don't think that's a bad approach but what if you're a client here uh what's that say to you if you're a client of somebody who's either at a wirehouse or with uh, people that uh, might be thinking about moving well first of all it's all about the relationship that you have with the advisor, the team of advisors that you have working with you. Here's the problem. If I'm an advisor and I want to leave, I can't telegraph that, right? It's really, really, really a big no-no to do. Now, you might drop some hints, right? Hey, so, you know, might be some changes, right? You can do a little bit, a little teeny tiny bit. But if, I mean, think of it this way. If you're my employee, and I know that you're leaving in a month from now. What am I going to do today? Oh, I'm going to make it as rough as heck for you. Or yeah, you're gone today. Boot you out the door now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to let you prep your exit and get everything all in order and, you know, get one last commission check and then bail. Heck no, man. I'm going to can you today. So, you, so if I'm an advisor, I can't really tell too many people, right? So you may find out if you're a client, you may call one day and go, hey, can I talk to Jack? I, uh, Jack's not here anymore. Here's the problem. They're not going to tell you, oh, Jack's not at Merrill. He's at Morgan. They're not, and Jack's not here anymore. Your account's now with Bob. Yes. Bob is fantastic. Bob's awesome. You're going to love Bob. So you have a choice to make as a client there, right? Do you start a new relationship with the same company but with a different person, right? You're at Morgan. Do you still want to stay at Morgan with a new advisor and a new advisory team? Or do you want to go hunt down your former broker, right? Because without this broker protocol, technically he's not going to be able to call you or she's not going to be able to call you or reach out to you. You're going to have to do some Googling, right? Bob Jones, now here's where you can find him. This is, I'm throwing a bone to everybody here. Go on FINRA.org. We talked about doing broker check, right? On FINRA.org, go on the SEC website, look up your advisor and find out where they're registered. So if your broker was a Merrill broker, and you call and Bob's no longer, or, you know, Jack, whatever is, I can't keep track of who we're giving <laughs> job, jobs to here. You know, just go to BrokerCheck, Finner.org, BrokerCheck, put in your advisor's name, find out where they're registered. Oh, now they're at Merrill. They were at Morgan. It'll tell you. And then you can call. If you're a client, you can call. And there's nothing wrong. The judge can't prevent you from moving your money. The judge can prevent, you know, your advisor from contacting you and letting you know. So yes. that's one way to figure it out. Great. Our next headline comes to us from uh, CBSnews.com. This is from their Money Watch division. Congrats on the holiday bonus. Here's how to minimize your income tax it. Of course, there are some people listening to this that are hoping for a holiday bonus. Uh, <coughs> <coughs> Mom, please hand out the bonuses. <coughs> Hello. <coughs> and we're not talking about the extra cookies. thumbs and wants a bonus. This guy. Let's make that four thumbs. Yes. <laughs> this guy, too. But if you are expecting a holiday bonus, I think sometimes people are surprised that that can come with a tax hit, OG. Earned income. Weird. So if you're receiving a holiday bonus this year, congratulations. A 2017 survey by accounting principals found that 63% of the surveyed companies plan to give out a year-end monetary bonus or gift this year based on company 
departmental or employee performance. Your first thoughts, of course, are how you're going to spend it, but just remember mm-hmm. the taxes. So the IRS generally considers bonuses to be supplementary income, and they're usually taxed that way within a separate bracket considered discretionary rewards that constitute a surprise <laughs> to the employee. The discretionary definition still holds even if your employer gives the same holiday bonus every year because the employer is not obligated to give the amount compared to a contractual performance reward or pay for overtime work. That uh, You don't want to be caught by that, do you? Well, it's a different bracket. So you'd think, hey, I'm going to get $10,000. You can kind of look it up and look online and say, oh, okay, well, here's going to be my approximate take home. And then you get your check. You're expecting it to be seven grand, and it's really 5500 the reason for that is there's just a flat, you know, flat uh, federal tax assigned to it. Now, bonuses can also be a part of your wage, according to this piece. When the bonuses included in your wages, your employer might, if they're nice, give you an opportunity to change your withholding for that ah, single and ninety nine, baby. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> and include <laughs> for all the month of December. Well, no tax man. That's what you're talking about. Is get rid of all the tax on that, so more of it goes in your pocket. But there will still be a piper to pay if you do that. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. That, that that chicken comes home to roost. But that's not till April, so who cares? That's not till April, so <laughs> plenty of time to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, check with your HR accounting department to see what options you may have. So some ways to help you not spend your bonus. Obviously, if you haven't maxed out your 401k, you can hopefully contribute to that if it's not too late with HR. Mm-hmm. If you have an HSA available or a flex savings account, you might be able to reduce your taxable income and increase your health benefits. Remember, if it's a flex savings account, you can put that in, but then you want to make sure you spend it all by the end of the year. Otherwise, you just kiss that money bye-bye. You can also consider an IRA if you're eligible, either a traditional or a Roth, to try to maximize your bonus. I thought those were some good tips. Yeah, Roth's not going to help you with your taxes. but um, uh, And with the HSA, even if you already have one and you're past the, you know, sometimes HR sends out a letter and says, you know, hey, uh, we're fixing to pay bonuses. What do you want done with yours? Put it all in my 401k, put it all in my retirement plan, my, you know, whatever. Even if you're past that option, you can. Are you looking at me because I said fixing? Yeah, I totally am. <laughs> You're fixing to pay. What the hell is that? Bonuses. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> just shut up. <laughs> That's what they say. F-I-X-I-N apostrophe. Yeah, I we got fixin', you. We fixin', we fixin' to pay. I'm just waiting for, I'm just waiting for all y'all to come out next. Like, I don't, I don't really say all y'all. Well, well, y'all doesn't doesn't bother me. I get that one, but whenever a friend of mine says all y'all, my head goes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you say that you're no friend of mine. Um, <laughs> anyways, uh, you can still put money in an HSA even if it's not the company one, as long as it's you know not to the. Uh, you can just open your own, right? Because they're transferable. You just can't contribute too much. Don't do that. If it's a non-cash bonus, like a Thanksgiving turkey, it says, or a Christmas basket, those are usually considered non-taxable fringe benefits. Mm-hmm. However, if the gift month club. can be converted to cash, such as a store gift card, it will be con- considered a cash benefit, and then it'll be taxable. So remember that, too. I'll link to this article in our show notes at stackybenjamins.com. Good work here by Philip Christensen on this piece. I think our takeaways are bonus time, remember the tax man, do the right thing, don't waste that money. And then number two is you are thinking about going into the financial advising business. 
Remember those big, those big warehouses have made it harder to get out now than it used to be. And if your advisor is no longer at a warehouse, you can't find them. Take OG's advice and use BrokerCheck to figure out where they went. If you like the relationship, and stick with them. David Osborne and Paul Morris are two guys that know success. David Osborne has built one of the top real estate brokerages in the world with more than 4,300 agents and annual sales volume exceeding, ready for this, $8 billion with a B dollars. He's a best-selling author and serial entrepreneur. He's founded over 50 companies. At least 30 of those are ongoing profitable concerns right now. You're about to hear from him. And Paul Morris, no slouch either. He's a prolific and award-winning entrepreneur, trainer, business consultant, and best-selling author. As an active investor, he's grown his real estate portfolio to more than 700 rental units and 150,000 square feet of rental commercial space in 10 years. He transformed his California-based real estate brokerage business into the second largest Keller Williams franchise with 10 offices employing, get this, 2,200 agents, number one and number two at Keller Williams. These guys, these guys know what they're doing. Can't wait to talk to them. Lock arms for world dominance. It was awesome reading this book. I know it's going to be awesome talking to them. David Osborne and Paul Morris coming down to the basement. And here walking down the stairs, these guys, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today bestsellers. David Osborne, Paul Morris, welcome to the basement, guys. Have a seat. How are you? Thanks, Joe. Great to be with you, man. Thank you. Let me ask you about your money stories, because you guys, two top guys in your field, both with Keller Williams. David, how did you two get together to even write this book? Because you're not even, I mean, you're in Austin. Paul is in LA. What made you guys decide, let's go write a bestseller together? We had been friends for a long time, and Paul runs uh, a business in L.A. that I purchased a few years ago and has his own businesses out in L.A., and I was writing a book on wealth uh, since my dad got sick with with cancer and was dying, and I thought, man, I'm going to write this book and leave a legacy, and I was just running into roadblock after roadblock. It was taking me – I was three years in. I really hadn't done that much, and it was not going well. Paul and I were at dinner one night, and he said, you know, I've always wanted to write a book on wealth, and I'm like, no kidding. That's awesome. I'm, I'm writing one right now. He goes, hey, you want to do it together? I'm like, sure. And then as soon as he came on board and we had that camaraderie and that social circle, I started making faster progress. And that's that's how it began for me. And Paul, was your yeah. idea about a book similar to what David already had started? Well, David and I both work with a large sales force. And when you get really great at selling, you get great at earning more money. And what I found was that our sales force, while getting better and better and earning more money, oftentimes we're not building wealth. So that was something that I brought to the table rather than more sales skills was building wealth over time. I want to ask about your own money journeys because, you know, Wealth Can't Wait is teaching other people how to build wealth quicker and not wait for some sunny day down the road. Paul, let's let's start with you. What's your money story? When did, did your family talk about money? Did you find yourself wealthy at a young age? Definitely not. My dad was an entrepreneur, but he was an entrepreneur at a small level running parking lots. And he spent a lot of time parking cars rather than thinking about and working on his business. So I definitely got an entrepreneurial start from him. But from there, it was really uh, looking how to build wealth. I did see some relatives making some money investing in real estate. And I got that idea 
as an idea of creating passive income, always with the goal of creating freedom through investment so that we have assets that pay us in addition to just working every day and getting a paycheck. Do you remember a specific time that you had that aha about passive income? Because I think everybody kind of has this moment in their life. Well, I had an uncle who actually did quite well with uh, real estate investing. It was just the freedom that he had. And when I was tied to the job and my dad was tied to the job, we were literally parking cars and he was sort of rolling in. I grew up in Pittsburgh. He rolled in in his Cadillac and, you know, he could be there or not be there. And that was the sort of freedom that I aspired to. And it's cold in Pittsburgh. So you're like, I don't want to be out here these hours. How do I get more like my uncle? Yes. Yep. David, how about you? How about your money story? Uh, Wealthy at a young age or did you have a big aha also? Poor offshoot of a wealthy family on my mom's side. So I got to be around wealth as a youngster. And and we actually lived in the game warden's cottage on my great uncle's farm in England. And when you say farm in England, the land is so much more expensive that even though it was only 70 acres, it was probably worth tens of millions of pounds, which would be a lot of dollars. We, we were around wealth, which I think was an advantage, but we were not wealthy, which I think was also an advantage. My dad's idea of wealth was to work 30 years for the military and go fight wars and get a pension. Uh, so when my dad retired, my mom got into real estate. They bought a few rentals. So I grew up managing those rentals and they were a disaster. We're talking about meth labs in the attics and oh, a partner man. that a partner that when the crash happened of eight in the 80s didn't show up with any money. So my folks had to take them over, but I got that experience early and, and that's where I got the bug. I was like, well, if this is done right, you get, you get a rent check every month and really you got to spend an hour or so on the property. So early on, I knew I wanted to own a bunch of rental properties. Yeah. That's when you got not just the wealth bug, but the real estate bug at the same time. Exactly. And I'm, I'm kind of unemployable. So I had an advantage, like I can be brilliant, but I can be really stupid. So as an employee, do you want the brilliance with the stupidity? A lot of employees would rather have like a medium level of performance at all times. And I would be, uh, I'd be really stupid at work or really brilliant. I didn't have a middle ground. So not being employable meant I had to go figure something out for myself. I want to start with that. Actually, let's talk about a big concept in the book that you guys have, which is asset-based living versus skills-based living. And David, if we can stick with you for just a minute, can you explain the difference between these? Because I think this is a powerful, talk about ahas, it's a powerful aha for a lot of people. Yeah, if you want to steal the cookie jar of wealth, the cookie jar of life, this is the secret. You're going to live one day off your assets. It's going to be social security or a pension, hopefully. If you understand that, the sooner you build a plan to living off assets right now, the better. And that means buying rental properties, investing in businesses that make it because a business that fails is worse than nothing, but literally looking for ways to create cash flow that comes in without you working. So I've always been willing to work really, really, really hard for 12 to 18 months to build something that feeds me for a lifetime. If that's rehabbing a property, if that's starting some of the franchises that Paul and I have both started. But if you said to me, hey, you got to work 50 years here to get the golden watch and a pension, I'm like, oh, no, that's that's a trap. OK, so that's what we're talking about here is the sooner you understand that your future is going to be about living off your assets, the cash flow. As soon as you understand that, then the sooner you start building that asset based living or, or cash flow from assets, the better. In one of your early chapters, Paul, you guys talk about the seven traps of wealth. And I want to jump into those, if you don't mind, because trap number one is exactly what David's talking about. It's a stable or cushy job, like having a job that pays just enough. That's actually a trap. Mm -hmm. And actually, if I can back off of David's uh, asset based living versus cash flow, there's four there are four ways to move toward asset based living. If I just touch on them. Yeah, no, bring it. Is that useful? Absolutely. Yeah. Great. So following on what David was saying, there's really four ways to move toward asset based living. And, And the first one is very basic and frankly, not all that interesting. 
Uh, and that's just save more than you spend. That's going to create an excess that you'll be able to invest. The second one is to build a business that builds wealth. And that's something David mentioned that we've been doing so that it's you're not just working for your hourly or your paycheck. You're creating something that has momentum and can build for you. And the third way is to work for cash and equity, which you see a lot of deals now with with different companies where folks are negotiating a salary plus equity. And that's something I've done to build wealth. And then the last one that I have is really using investor money. So you bring your expertise or your sweat equity to a deal and you raise money. So you use other people's money. And those sort of the four basics to moving from a cash flow based living to asset based living. That's what I was going to ask about one of those, which is using other people's money. You know, people get afraid of leverage, right? They get afraid of, okay, I want to buy, to David's point earlier, I want to buy rental houses, but I don't have the cash to put down on those things. You just start off then, Paul, with, with step one, which is spend less than you earn? Well, that's the first place that David and I generally advise people is to buy your own home. When I was first living away from home, I was living in a very expensive city. So people feel like, oh, that's a big burden. But you can get a great loan when you're an owner-occupied. That's the fabulous lever into wealth building. And I couldn't afford to have the house on my own, but I could afford the small down payment. So I moved in this great house in Washington, D.C., and I filled it with roommates. And the roommates were paying the mortgage. So I had a great house, I had a great living space, and I was building wealth at the same time. That's the key to deleverage it is make sure you've got other people to help you make the payment. Yes, for sure. If I piggybacked on what Paul said, my daughter went to college in Boulder, Colorado, and I wanted her to learn about managing property. So I bought a five-bedroom home, and she lived in it and rented out the four bedrooms. The four bedrooms rented for 800 a month, which was 3200 a month total. The uh, total income mostly covered the mortgage and taxes and insurance was 2800 We had a few repairs, so she was lucky she had me as a backstop. And what's interesting about that, Joe, is at the end of the three years she was in school, the property had appreciated uh, by 150 grand. And her school and all the costs I was spending to send her to school was about 50 a year. So we actually, and that was a byproduct. I didn't expect that. We've been in a red-hot market. But at the end of the day, her living expenses were covered. She had zero rental costs. And the appreciation paid for three years of a pretty expensive college experience. So I was trying to teach her, but I also won by teaching her. So that, that's what Paul's saying is if you don't have a dad that'll do it for you, the sooner you can go buy your, your first house and then rent to roommates. Basically, they buy the house for you. That's a great idea. I wanted to ask you about something else about your daughter, David, because we used to do this with clients of mine when I was a financial planner. And that is, did you hire your daughter to be the house manager then and then pay her a salary so that she could then use money at a cheaper rate to pay for her school? That's a great idea. I gave her, instead of a fee, I gave her one and a half percent of the house a year. So she's currently owns, I think we're up to eight or 9% so far. So I basically gave her equity in the house because I'm going to have more money than I need anyway in life. So I'm trying to help my kids get a start. So the way to do that is to give them equity instead of salary. In the book, we talk about working either for knowledge or equity. So instead of paying her a salary, I paid her equity and she got the knowledge of learning how to manage roommates. And I won't lie, I came to rescue her a couple of times when a roommate would flake out. And again, she has that advantage of having me there. Not everyone has that. But when I was young, I was doing the same thing Paul was. I bought my first property. I didn't ha have roommates right away, but I lived in it for about six months. I like, forget this. 
I'm renting it out and going back to an apartment because I didn't like looking after it. So I rented it out. It was way cash flowing, like $250 a month. It was a $77,000 house. And I went and lived in an apartment for 500 bucks a month with a, with one room and a view. So I didn't have to deal with mowing my yard. So similar to what Paul said, the very aggressive listeners, they'll buy a house. They'll have roommates that will manage it for them. I even yes. know a kid that couldn't get credit. So he had a buddy of his co-sign the loan for him, let him have 50% of the house and then rented the rooms out to his roommates. So uh, that's super creative. And he's now that kid, by the way, he's 28 now. He owns eight rental properties. And his net passive income after all expenses is close to 5000 a month. That's so exciting. That's, that's really awesome. cool. Guys, we're gonna t- we were going to talk about the seven deadly wealth traps. I want to throw that out the window because we've got like three and a half or four minutes. Instead, I want to talk about another big topic in the book, which I think is important for anybody who's trying to build wealth. And that's idea the idea of a mastermind. I mean, Paul, David told the story about you two getting together. How important a mastermind's been in your life? Super important. Because one of the things that I find, for example, is that individuals just have blind spots. And and so, number one, being around a collective people that have great aspirations like you do, that's just going to elevate you to begin with. And then there's this sort of group effect where David can give me and has given me over years expert advice. And then he may have an issue, which is just in a blind spot. It's so obvious to the rest of us. And anytime when we're in a mastermind with smart people, anytime anybody speaks, I'm like, oh, this guy's a genius, you know, and then they talk about their own issues. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is not a genius, you know? And so it, it really is the group elevating one another. And then also just the ability to have smart minds looking at your issues that you may have blind spots in. How do you find, David, those right people when, when Paul talks about smart minds? Well, touching on one of the wealth traps is to have a weak social circle, right? So it's an old cliche, but you become the people you hang out with. In fact, I was reading a study this morning on an article that came out that said your happiness is determined by your peer group in large part. And so you find the right people by becoming the right person. And what I've found is the more goal-directed I've become, the more focused I've become, the more I've used some of the habits that we talk about in the book, the more people like that have been attracted to me and vice versa. And I almost feel like now I bump into uber successful people or very motivated people, let's say. Sometimes they work in charity in different spaces. And we resonate. It's like we are warriors that have been in different battles, but we've been on the same journey. And when we come together, we're like, hey, you're like my brother versus the people that are still living in victimhood or blame or or apathy or unmotivation. Or the, then you meet those guys and you're, the opposite happens. You're like, wow, how do I get out of this conversation as quickly as possible? <laughs> and I'm not saying bad things don't happen to people and that there's not good reasons to be down. There are. But at the end of the day, you have a choice to make that only you can make. I'm either going to let the world beat me or I'm going to do my best to win in the world. And if you choose that second thing, you'll find a million winners out there that want to support you in that, that'll be beside you even when you lose. And if you choose just to acquiesce to the victimhood, you'll find a million or a billion. There may be even more of those guys that'll just let you dwell in all your pity and sad sadness. And uh, that's where you'll end up. So if you become the right person, you'll resonate with other great people and you'll end up building a tribe through that choice you've made. A great mentor of mine once said, just very simply, avoid clusters of misery. And I think that's what you're talking yes, about, David. Exactly. Just you see a cluster exactly. of misery from a mile away, just stay away, man. But Paul, back to you for a second. In a mastermind, you know, part of the hard thing that we have in masterminds that I've been in is making sure you hold each other accountable because you hold each other accountable, speaking of leverage, when you have leverage. But if you and I are kind of you've got your thing you're working on. I've got my thing I'm working on. If I decide not to do what I do, like how can I lay leverage on the fact that, that, that you're not doing what you said you were going to do in our last mastermind meeting? 
Well, I think being purposeful about accountability is super important. Uh, speaking just from my own journey, I get so much more done when I have an accountability partner. It's something that you want to agree to. So if, you, if you're not interested in it, you don't agree to it, that's okay, don't do it. If for me, if I really wanna move forward, I accept and embrace that accountability. And I say, okay, folks, here's what I'm gonna do. And then the first thing you do in the meeting is here's what all the folks said they were going to do. You go around the room and say, hey, did you do it? And there's no excuses. So you know what? I didn't do it. Uh, yes, I did. Or I, or I did 80% of that task. That right there is a great format for accountability for a mastermind. But you just have to be purposeful about it and want that. People misunderstand that winners, they think, oh, they just crush it all the time. The reality is we fail all the time. And what Paul just said is so important. You just own it. Paul and I do 100-day challenges all the time where it'll be like, let's do yoga for 70 of the next 100 days or not eat sugar for – and one of us sometimes kills it. Sometimes we both do, and some one of them's terrible. And the, you'll just say on the on the calls, hey, how are you doing on the no sugar challenge? I'm terrible. I had apple pie with ice cream last <laughs> night and the night before. And yes. that's the key is authenticity and willingness, willingness to do it, but owning your failure with as much – joy and, and, well, not joy maybe, but honesty as you own your successes. Most people brag all day about their successes and not talk at all about their failures. I think you want to be willing to do both. Like, yeah, I've been terrible at that. I'm going to try to do better because the beginning to change is accepting where you are. I just wish you guys were passionate about these topics. I mean, if you guys would bring a little passion to the table, this would have been a better discussion. The book is called Wealth Can't Wait, David Osborne, Paul Morris. This is available everywhere, correct? Yeah, everywhere, Joe. Yes. And, and and how cool is it, David? We'll go to you because you're the guy that wanted to, said you wanted to write the book and told that to Paul. Now that you see your name on this cover, how cool does that feel? It's amazing. It took us four years, five years together. It took me seven years. And I think Paul and I were nervous all the way to the end. And then it came out, hit New York Times bestseller, and we both feel great about it and will till the day we die. It just got translated into uh, Korean. I mean, it's, it's been a fun journey. And even though it's not highly profitable and I wouldn't recommend <laughs> writing books for profit, uh, it's been a great adventure and doing it with Paul has been a heck of a lot of fun. And we've become closer during the process as well. Does that mean, Paul, you guys are headed to Korea now on the Korean book tour? Yes. Well, we've got a few choices. Uh, it's also being translated into complex Chinese. I've, I read this morning. So yeah, it's definitely one of these things that uh, I know one of the things, Joe, that you asked about before was just chunking down goals. And that's, yes. this is a perfect one. It also has to do with discipline. I, I really look at my life as being a very undisciplined life at times. And yet uh, you've got this massive goal, which is writing a book. The way to accomplish a giant goal is just break it down into a lot of little tasks. And, and we can even hit 80% of the little task, you're like, okay, great. You know, that's the way to do something really big. And it's really a great metaphor for wealth building because if you're where you are now, and let's say you have $50,000 in, in net worth and you're looking at, well, geez, I want to hit 50 million. You might as well quit. Okay. Right. But if you've got these different little goals along the way, it's a fabulous metaphor for building wealth is just how to write a book when David and I are not really authors and we've got other stuff to do. I'm glad you brought that up because chunking your goals was one of the huge, huge things in the book. And I had totally forgotten to bring it up, but that's one of like seven bajillion things in here. Uh, David Osborne, Paul Morris, thanks for hanging out for a few minutes. Joe, Thank thanks you. so much for having us. It was a blast. Hey, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And because I'm the alpha male in this basement, like you didn't know that already. I heard OG talking about Alpha while the guys were setting up, and I thought it would make a great trivia question. So flex your financial definitions muscles here, kids. When talking about mutual fund statistics, what does Alpha mean? 
I'll be back with your answer as soon as I go ask OG what the heck alpha means. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Stacking Benjamins. You know what? I received my Harry starter set. I got to tell you, I'm a sucker for packaging with everything from the songs that you can sing to how to apply the shaving lotion. That was awesome. But the razor itself and the smell of that shaving cream were incredible. Finding the right gift for a guy like me, I know, can feel impossible. So how difficult is it to find something that's a thoughtful gift, but also useful, practical, and special? Well, guess what? This holiday, Harry's is offering custom and limited edition shaving sets that make perfect gifts. Their gift sets were built with your guy in mind, so you know he'll love them. Sets come with German-engineered five-blade cartridges, provide a close, comfortable shave. The foaming shave gel that smells amazing. I'm telling you, it smells awesome. Special limited edition winter chrome and emerald green handles. I didn't get that with my set. My set has the normal handle. Feels great in my hand. And personalize it with engraving. No matter what you're looking for, Harry's has you covered. Sets come ready to gift in beautifully designed gift boxes. Gift sets start at just 10 bucks, and they have great stocking stuffers. Even get something for yourself with Harry's. As a special offer for Stacking Benjamins, peeps, we're partnering with Harry's to give you $5 off your order when you head to harrys.com forward slash SB. This offer is only available for the holidays. So this holiday, give Harry's and give Handsome. Get your holiday shopping done early. Take advantage of free shipping to get a limited edition holiday shave set while supplies last. harrys.com forward slash SB right now. harrys.com forward slash SB. You know, down here in the basement, we only like to partner with companies we're proud to put our name behind. So we're excited to announce M1 Finance. Recently sat down with Brian Barnes, CEO and founder, and asked him what makes M1 Finance unique. M1 is one of the only automated investing platforms that allows you to customize the portfolio that you invest in. It creates a lot more engagement and fun in investing while still being easy and low cost. Anybody who's tried online investing tools or used to compromises, do you pick a traditional self-directed brokerage that hits you with commissions at every trade or an automated machine makes you hand over the reins? Don't compromise. Scratch out commissions at every turn, take back control of your own portfolio, and take advantage of the uniqueness that's M1 Finance. Takes minutes to sign up. Start by heading over to stackybenjamins.com forward slash M1 Finance. M1 Finance, be invested. Disclaimer, by the way, both Cheryl, my spouse, and I use M1 Finance. It works for us, but you need to do your own homework. Hey there, trivia fans. Good news. I got the answer to today's trivia question, and I'm 99% sure it's correct, which, by the way, is far better record than the other financial show's trivia segments. Today's question was this. When talking about mutual fund statistics, what does alpha mean? The answer, alpha is a statistic that shows risk-adjusted returns. So, if a fund takes very little risk, but has a high historic return, it's said to have a high alpha. Alpha is expressed as a positive or negative number, so if it's negative, that means it takes more risk than the index it competes against, but achieves worse returns. The lesson for this alpha dog? Keep those numbers positive, people. See ya! It's an easy one for a guy like you. Yeah, thanks for throwing me a bone. You know, you know when you play golf, I actually had this uh, this game that where you created golf courses. 
It was a okay. Sid Meier computer game. And it was funny because I never thought about the psychology of creating a golf course. But the psychology is if you're going to have a really, really tough hole, put easy holes on either side of it, right? Easier holes. Okay. So that the, the golfer's confidence stays high and they want to come back because a lot of a lot of it is psychological. So I found that. Now, what if you really suck at golf and every hole is really hard? <laughs> well, then go for the holes that have the windmill. Yes. That's what, that's what I... That's the clown's what, mouth. Yeah, that, that's what I think. But this was an easy hole for a guy like you was my point. Gotcha. Keep my confidence high. Like it. Smart. Smart choice. Hey, engaged. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline now, OG. We'll tackle some of life's or rather life insurance's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, well, they've been spearheading innovation within the life insurance industry by focusing on those two things you value most. (laughs) Golf courses. And and windmills. uh, Windmills. Or your family and your time, especially this time of year, it's your family and your time. Sure. That's why they've created a high quality and most importantly, affordable term life insurance policy issued by Mass Mutual. You can purchase entirely online. No need to wait several weeks for a decision when you can get one instantly with Haven Life. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote and to learn about insurance the modern way. You know, this is the time, especially we're thinking about family, that if you don't have the right amount of life insurance, there's a gift. It's a gift that keeps on giving. Oh, no, it does, doesn't. No, really, really, really gives <laughs> kind once. Kind of a one-time gift. <laughs> kind of a one-time, really big one-time gift. Yeah, and you're not Merry around. Merry Christmas, yes. sweetheart. I got you a life insurance policy. And she says, yeah, and I got you this dish full of mushrooms. <laughs> right. Have Let, you tried our new arsenic soup? <laughs> Let's say hello to our good friend, Derek. Hi, Joe and OG. This is your friend, Derek calling about uh, our tax returns for the year of 2017. We're just doing some prep work for next April. I was just wondering about some expenses that my wife incurred throughout the year. She works currently as an employee. However, for a few months, she did work as an independent contractor. During this time, uh, we incurred some costs to pay for her website and a few other things, amounting about $1,000 for the year. I was just wondering if we could deduct those in addition to our standard deduction or if just the standard deduction is best for us. Obviously, I don't really want to itemize our deductions because I think the standard would be much higher. So I was just wondering your opinion on that. Don't worry about giving me any bad advice because Doug should have gotten you guys the liability waiver that I sent to him. And I honestly don't expect to learn much from you. I really just called you guys to get the free T-shirt. So thanks for your help. Bye. Anybody who calls us just Honesty to get the, is the best policy. Just to get the Haven Life t-shirt. That's a badass t-shirt. I absolutely love that. Well, that's coming to you, Derek, but good news. I think we're going to help you a lot because this is not going to be about itemizing at all. Yeah, it doesn't go in itemization in the least bit. So, if Mrs. Derek had a uh, business, she has a schedule C that she has to fill out, right? So she has some revenue perhaps and uh, certainly some expenses and um you're going to offset any revenue that she made with those expenses that you incurred, however much they were. And if you end up with a positive, that ends up on your tax return as income. If it ends up as a negative, it ends up on the front page of your tax return as a negative against your other income. So it's really kind of dollar for dollar really is where it's going to go. So it's not going in Schedule A at all. Schedule C is what you're looking for. Yeah. And we are not tax advisors, so check with your tax advisor. How about that? We'll, we'll, there you go. We'll put that in the end. Our show is for entertainment purposes only. So we need uh, like the guy that talks really fast to say that, though. This show is for entertainment purposes. We gotta, yeah, exactly. We, you know, we gotta yeah. put Doug on, on, on 
we gotta give fast. The, like have him record it really slowly. We'll get him hopped up on coffee. Is what we'll do. <laughs> Imagine Doug hopped up on coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a little scary. Thanks for the question, Derek. We also get mail down here in this basement. We got a note that Doug brought down here from Ashley. Ashley says, I recently found out my husband's grandfather took out a life insurance policy on my husband back in 1988. It was with Prudential, and the policy was called Variable Appreciable Life. Since then, his grandfather's passed away in the 90s, and my husband's parents have been making the payments on this policy. Now that my husband's 40, they've given us the responsibility of making the payment. I've been trying to get more info on this policy, but it has since been discontinued, and the agent had no idea. We went to meet with him, and all he did was call someone that never provided much info. <laughs> what what a great what a great agent! Talk, I don't, talk about like really putting your best foot forward. I don't a new relationship. Yeah, you got this stuff from before. Uh, beats me. Let yeah. me dial up a number. <laughs> uh, nope, nobody's there. They don't know either. Sounds like you should probably replace it because I don't know. I bet that your own tea he's replacing. Meeting was followed with a sales pitch. Well, since it's been discontinued, I don't know much about it. So we should, which probably means the policy was better, right? Than what the 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 new guy, what the guy was recommending. Oh, I don't know much about that. So, uh, in researching it on my own, Ashley continues after my sarcastic remarks. I believe it's a whole life policy. Yikes! Here are the details. Premium payments, $214 per year. Cash value, $13,700. Death benefit, $61,000. Can you provide any more details on what this policy is? Should we keep paying the premiums or cash this baby out? Thanks for the question, athlete. Ashley, let's uh, give this one a go, OG. Yeah, this is going to be one of those answers that is really not an answer because there's way too much unanswered questions to be able to recommend to cancel an insurance policy. Well, let's start off with what we know about this. Based on what she told us, I think there's a lot of stuff that we know. Yeah, I doubt that it's a whole life policy. Variable appreciable life sounds like it's a variable policy to me, which which means... Yep, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I didn't know if the question was meant to be answered by me or you. but uh, Probably me, but go ahead. But I'm going to get to do it. All right. So it means that the uh, investment portion, or could mean anyway, that the investment portion in that fund is kind of like mutual funds, right? So it's going to be equity-based or could be, right? You might have some options to choose how to invest that money as opposed to it being in a fixed account like you'd see with a whole life policy. Grandpa, mom and dad, and now you guys have been paying into this policy for you know the last, whatever, 30 years, I guess. And so if you cash it out, you have to know what that contribution amount was because what you put in and what you take out could be taxable, right? So if you put in 10,000 and it's worth 13 and you cash it out, you're going to pay taxes on that gain. The other thing that you want to be aware of is whether or not that uh, you can find a replacement amount of insurance for a commensurate amount. You know, $200 a year for an insurance policy is not overly expensive. And certainly you can assuming that uh, hubby's health is okay, probably find a reasonable term policy for the same amount. But I would be more interested in starting with the beginning of uh, kind of the beginning of the calculation of how much do we really need first? And then, and then, you know, we talk about starting with the plan. We need to know how much we need, what the plan is for the amount, and then start backing into what sort of solutions do we use to fill that. The good news about permanent policies is that they can be around longer than a term policy. So for some reason, they do need insurance later in life. And I don't know, Ashley, about your situation, but if you do need insurance later in your life, 
This thing actually is set up, sounds to me kind of nicely because the policy was well-funded, which is the $13,000 in cash and only a $61,000 death benefit. I'll bet, I'll bet that you could, if you need insurance later on in life, you could slow down your payments. And this is all going to, these are part of those unanswered questions OG you're talking about. You might be able to slow down those payments quite a bit and have that policy last for a good long time with that amount of money and that low of a death benefit, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. You you might even be able to just leave it. Yeah. Like you said, never never touch it again and still have but still have it. But that doesn't mean that we recommend keeping it because certainly if you don't need if you don't need need insurance after, you know, you're 60 or whatever, why keep an insurance policy around when you've got $13,000 sitting there that could be better used for something else? Yeah. And there's a lot of options that you can use with this money too. down the line could help supplement um, college tuition perhaps or something like that. So, so I would first start with, you know, what the rest of the plan looks like in terms of, in terms of all of your other competing goals, retirement, college, you know, debt payoff, whatever you're working on, because that'll start clear, backing but, into. Well, because to your point, that'll clear up how long you need insurance. Yeah, sure will. Yep, yep. And then you can start evaluating the policy. Here's my recommendation in terms of looking it up. So Prudential has got to have record of it, right? So it's a it's available. You that, just have to. That's what I was thinking. That agent, if they're a Prudential agent, they're either really bad or playing dumb. Yeah, there is. Uh, I mean, you probably just go online and find the prospectus for it. Read about the cost structure and that sort of thing. Thanks for the question, Ashley, and also Derek for the questions today. If you've got a question for the show, head to stackybenjamins.com and you'll see at the top of our website a link that says questions for the show. Click that and you'll find the Haven Lifeline. You'll also find a place to write us a letter. Also, if you're looking for good financial help in your corner here at the year end, start off 2018 in the right way. OG's taking clients to get on his calendar and find out what that would take to get him in your corner. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash letter O, letter G. StackingBenjamins.com forward slash OG. Thanks also to everyone who's left a review of this podcast. This one is funny. It's going on Mom's Fridge. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because this one made me laugh. This comes to us from Bozmax says, OG should be bagged. Get it? Like you got a bag over your head. Uh-huh. Yeah. Five stars says if Louis Rukeyser and Paula Poundstone had a baby, it would live in Joe's mom's basement. Wait, maybe it already does. The original panel of Penzo, Poundstone and McFarland. <laughs> Rock. That's, uh, that's so, that's so obscure. It's so obscure. Louis Rukeyser, that's pulling one out. I don't even know who that is. So. You have no, no idea. Yeah. Well, there we go. Obscurity for the win. Thanks for, for that uh, going on mom's uh, refrigerator. Coming up on Wednesday on this here podcast, Mr. Roger Whitney, the retirement answer man, is out with a book that has the best forward ever. Look at this, OG. Forward written by. Oh, yeah. Has your name in there. Ford written by Joe Salcihai, creator of the award-winning Stacking Benjamins podcast. There you go. So you had me write the forward of your book. Probably means I got to have you on the show. That's what Roger's like. Can you come on the show? Can I come on your show? I'm like, hell, hell no, we can't. I'll let you write the forward. Okay. Yeah, deal. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't happen that way. Actually, the book is about rock retirement, and anybody that knows Roger knows that Roger's got uh, some great progressive views on your retirement plan. So if you're worried at all about retiring, whether it's a uh, fire uh, financial independence, retire early retirement or a normal retirement. Roger's got you covered on Wednesday show. 
All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. So four out of the seven people listening right now fell asleep during most of the show. So hope you had a good nap. But now that you're awake, I'll tell you what you missed. First, take advice from David and Paul. Looking for wealth? Find like-minded people and get busy. Surrounding yourself with people who will help nudge you toward bigger goals will keep you motivated when times get rough. And trust me, times will get rough. Second, thinking there's a year-end bonus in your future? Plan ahead for the tax man. But the big lesson? Always make a big entrance at your company's holiday party. I know we didn't talk about this during the show, but I saved the best for the end. I strongly suggest a portable radio with theme music and a baby blue tuxedo with ruffles. Really, it'll pair great with a beverage I suggest you carry in your paper bag. Trust old Uncle Doug on this one. This idea is a winner. You'll identify yourself immediately as the alpha dog in the room. Special thanks to David Osborne and Paul Morris for stopping by. You'll find their book, Wealth Can't Wait, wherever books are sold. When you're done messing around with us, who do you want to teach you some money tricks? That nerd who talks over your head or your favorite basement-based geeks? Kathleen Selmans operates our Stacking Benjamins classroom. And to make up for the fact that we don't teach you anything here on the show, she's created a whole lot of tools you'll absolutely love. Head to learn.stackingbenjamins.com for details. And use coupon code DougRocks for 10% off. Yeah, you're welcome. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. Shannon Cowan is our community manager and social media guru, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm pretty much the guy in charge of everything around here. Trust me, this well-oiled machine didn't get like this all by itself. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. I can't believe we've gone from the movie desert to all of a sudden we've got movie, 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 movie. And, and, and you know what? That's, that's not going to change. Nope. Just with, I got my movie pass now, man. I'll go every day. I know with all the movies coming out too. Which by the way, I used it. Awesome. It's simple. So easy. Yep. You know, we were going to give it to our kids because they're offering a deal for one year. It's already a fantastic deal. If you like movies, 
But then we thought, our kids are both, Nick's going into a new city where he doesn't know anybody, in a new job where he doesn't know anybody. And Autumn is, you know, at home just a couple days a week because she's a road warrior. And uh, we're like, you know what? You're new in your career. I don't want you sitting in a movie house by yourself. Go <laughs> go meet people and do stuff. There's a gift card to Buffalo Wild Wings instead. <laughs> do you see Buffalo Wild Wings got bought by Arby's? I did. And we have the meats. This is interesting. I heard this at Marketplace this morning, which is the problem is Buffalo Wild Wings profits have gone down, not because there's fewer people going to Buffalo Wild Wings, but because the price of wings has gone through the roof. The supply of wings, as more people yes. want, as more people like wings, the price goes up. And now, you know, one analyst was saying on Marketplace was saying that if Buffalo Wild Wings is trying to buy just the wing and not the whole bird, you're going to pay a premium for just that part, which is why, and I never knew this, I should have known this, Buffalo Wild Wings has had a special on boneless wings. And the reason is because boneless wings aren't wings at all. There are other parts of the chicken that have been mashed together, mashed together to look yeah, like, like a, a sausage, <laughs> look like a wing, which makes me go, I'll take the traditional. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with the rest of the chicken, but I, I well, uh, there was another article I read in, um, in the wall street journal about how Americans are eating more chickens, just generally more chicken. And there's uh, not enough demand or not enough supply. Not enough supply. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that made that company apparently ripe for the picking. There's a joke there, plucking. too. Some, right for the right plucking. For the plucking. There it was. I, I was so close that I missed it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Let's hurry through yours because yours are a couple older movies and I've got a preview <laughs> and then one I saw in the theater. But you saw some on demand. I've got, I've got two old ones and one in the theater one. Well, let's do your in the theater one on Wednesday because I really want to get this one out today. Well, because it's all about Joe. It's not all about me, but I've got the damn thing queued up and ready to go. Maybe we saw the same one. Maybe we did. I doubt we did, though, because I don't think you're going to see this movie, even Never though. Know. But all anyway. right. So first one that I saw and I saw about two thirds of it, three quarters of it on an airplane, uh, The House with Amy Poehler and yes. uh, Will Ferrell. And we had we had the director of The House yes. on the show. Yes. Didn't see the end of it. Saw about three quarters of it. Not going to pay the four bucks on iTunes to watch the last 20 minutes. I'll wait for it to come out on Netflix. So not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I actually. Not worth four dollars. Sadly, to see I, the last you know forty minutes or whatever. Sadly, I read that in the reviews. Like not, yeah. not all that. Some funny parts, but uh, but yeah, you know. Okay, and then uh, the other movie that I saw here recently, oldie, 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 couple years old now. It's called The Gunman, which obviously sounds like a movie that I would see. You're looking sure. at me like, well, obviously you saw that Cha. probably seventeen times. <laughs> Sean Penn, Javier Bardem kind of the two main actors. But the long and the short of it is, is that uh, they kind of work for the government behind the scenes. And then something they do comes back to haunt them later. And so kind of getting chased, kind of a whodunit, kind of uh, who's who's resurrecting this uh, this old, you know, quasi-atrocity that they had to do. You know, government told them to do this, they did it, and now years later they're being hunted down for it basically so kind of cool a lot of shooting a lot of grenades big guns a lot of booms popcorn movie for sure mm-hmm. i saw a movie good actors you know sean penn and javier oh bardem. yeah yeah javier bardem whatever that guy's in incredible yeah, really cool yep i liked him in the james bond film recently yeah <laughs> recently like six years ago he, he plays such a creepy bad guy what's it six years ago that's so bad okay. uh yeah. well that's recently 
I saw age, of course it is. I saw a easy. I saw a movie that just passed a milestone. It's a movie that's been rated the most, so it's had the most critics review it, and it still has a one hundred percent Rotten Tomato score. So okay, this was not the movie that I saw then, but let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this was a little movie called uh, Lady Bird. I hate California. I want to go to the East Coast. I want to go where culture is, like How New in the York. World did I raise such or at least snow. Connecticut or New Hampshire, no, where writers live in the get woods. Get into those schools anyway. Mom! You should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail, and then back to City College, and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. Lady Bird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Lady Bird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. What she did was very baller. It was very anarchist. Put the magazine back! <laughs> she has a big heart, your mom. She's warm, but she's also kind of scary. You can't be scary and warm. I think you can. Your mom is. So you're not interested in any Catholic colleges? No way. I want schools like Yale, but not Yale because I probably couldn't get in. <laughs> you definitely couldn't get in. I, I love it when your guidance counselor starts laughing when you say you want to go to Yale. Mm -hmm. like, no, no, you no, you kid. Like it, probably number one thing they teach you when you're becoming a guidance counselor is don't laugh at the kid's dream. And immediately she starts laughing. But Lady Bird is played by the same young actress who plays uh, who played Brooklyn a couple of years ago, uh, who played in the movie Brooklyn. And of course, that was a movie that that I really liked. Uh, her name is uh, and I'm, I'm going to slaughter this Siorsi uh, Ronan. And her mom is played by the same woman who was Roseanne's sister in the TV show Roseanne. Remember that TV show? Never watched it. Lori Metcalf. And it is hard. This is this is about Lady Bird, who, as you heard in that clip, she names herself, just decides that her name's going to be Lady Bird, so she calls herself that. It's a story of her in high school and learning some lessons about growing up. It's a movie about growing up and, and figuring stuff out, making some horrible mistakes along the way. And really, it's a little movie, OG. I mean, it's little because... There's no big aha. There's no big stuff happening. There's things that are big in an individual's life, but there's not something, you know, they're not trying to save the world from aliens. They're not hoping to, to, to make sure the galaxy stays in place. There's, you know, there's not the force. Uh, you're not uh, working for the U.S. government doing big things. It's a kid in high school making stupid decisions and paying for those and the relationship with her mom who uh, what I like best about movies is when characters change during the movie and you see them have these big ahas and there's certainly some ahas that the characters have. Uh, so uh, is it 100% Rotten Tomatoes? I can totally see why it is. My favorite movie of the year? Not sure. I think it might be. Um, definitely a movie that, uh, I don't know, I think that I can't think of who wouldn't like this movie. Um, just, a, just a warm, good movie. I think of the two movies I've seen her in, Lady Bird and Brooklyn. I think I still would see Brooklyn first. I think I like Brooklyn better. So if you didn't like Brooklyn, probably going to hate this film. But I don't even know if you, you probably didn't even see Brooklyn, did you? I, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. So no. All right. E even after I gave it the huge thumbs up when Brooklyn came out, still, nope. Check. I don't even remember it. So I guess not. <laughs> there it is.
he's t- tuned out like he is with with my review of this movie. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, not gonna happen. So uh, Lady Bird really liked it, and um, well worth the the critical praise that it's getting. And you know, they always have that popcorn, um, like how many fans going like it, and that's awfully high too. I think that was like ninety five percent. So big, big numbers for Lady Bird. That's going to do it, man. So on Wednesday, we'll find out what OG saw at the theater with his movie pass. Right on, buddy. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, There are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.